my name's Phil. I'm one of the pastors on the team here. Oh, you didn't, you did you forgot. Jasmine forgot to dismiss the youth. So if you're youth, um, she is going to take you this morning to hang out for a little bit and, and talk about that same question, but in your own, in your own way. So if you're youth, you can head on out with Jasmine. Um, you may have gathered that we're terrible at announcements here. <laughs> if we don't forget something, we've forgotten what it was that we forgot, if that makes sense. Um, just a, a note on that 10 a.m. time and another way to reiterate it. Next week, we start at 10 a.m. Um, and I know there's this sort of like, what? Don't, don't fix what's not broken. And it was not our idea. So there's not some grand plan of why 10 a.m. is more holy than 10.30 or anything like that. The building has asked us to move earlier. And their original ask was that we would finish by 9.30. Um, so I compromised. Um, and we are starting at 10 which is the strangest compromise, but they seem to agree to it. So we're going with 10 a.m. Um, next, next week and then onward. The good thing is you'll get out for brunch earlier. So that's, that's all good things. I say, my name is Phil, and we're in this teaching series, Who Do You Say I Am? And it's inspired by that question that Jesus asks in, in Matthew 16. He asks his disciples, who do you say I am? That's what I'm hearing what these other people are saying. You're telling me what other people are saying. What do, what do you say? Because that's really what matters. And our hope is that through this series, over the last few weeks and the, the weeks to come, that you'll begin to see how the narrative of the Bible weaves God's love story for his people from the very beginning all the way to the end. And that you'll feel inspired or maybe challenged to consider that question that Jesus asked. Like, who do you say I am? And you'll answer it for yourself, whether that's for the first time or the hundredth time. You'll begin to think through that answer and how it's maybe different to how it used to be. We've spent time in the Old Testament. We've seen how Jesus was the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. How he's part of this, this new covenant of grace and reconciliation through faith. And now we're in the New Testament specifically the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And there's seven statements that Jesus made in the gospel of John that are particularly pivotal to his ministry, to the Old Testament prophecies that we've been looking at, and the claims of his identity. And um, before we begin, as I wrote this message, it was, it, it was really, really long. And so I was like, hey, this is, this is what, we can either split this over seven weeks, or... Uh, we can be here for a long time, or, and I said, let's do this. So I called Moses, and he's speaking next weekend. I said, hey, let's do this. Let's split it in two. So there's seven statements, and I'll preview them this morning, but we're just going to do the first four this morning. Moses will pick up the final few next week, which will be at 10 a.m. when church starts next week at 10 a.m. Just 10 a.m. Um, each of these statements, if you, if you don't know, they begin with I am, and they represent a particular relationship between Jesus and our spiritual need. He desires that we receive him, not just for what we get, but what he might be to us in this kind of relationship. And they're a great insight into who Jesus is. Now, if you've been around in the last few months, um, you might have realized, gathered, that the, the narrative of Moses is one that I find extremely powerful, and I keep referring to it in almost every message. We go back to Moses. Um, here we are again. God had centuries earlier to what we're reading now in the Gospel of John revealed himself to Moses with the decisive statement, I am. In Exodus 3.14, God replies to Moses. He says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And centuries later, 
Jesus uses the same name, I am, in the Gospel of John to describe himself. He says it to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 26. He says, the I am is here. When he walks on water to, to walk out to the disciples in a, in a, in a boat in the storm in, in John 6, he says, don't be afraid. The I am is here. He reaffirms that to his followers later on in John 13. The I am has come. And now we have these seven statements further defining his identity. Now, if you want to follow along on a Bible app in your phone, feel free to, because we're going to bounce around a little bit, and we're going to race through a little bit. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and I want to go through all of the seven statements, so we'll bring them up on the screen as well. I'm going to move this thing, because it's kind of getting in my eye, eye, eye line. First one is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And that's John 6, 35. He reiterates that statement three more times in that chapter. I am the bread of life. Then in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. John 10, verse 7, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. John 10, again, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then lastly, in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can see how it was like eight messages. Now, Jesus was continually pointing their eyes towards himself as God in light of the Old Testament scriptures that we've already talked through, the prophecies of his coming. Now, we're going to take a dive, as I said, into that first four statements this morning. And if you don't have a regular Bible routine, um, a a regular study that you're working through, this could be a really good place to start. Because you could start actually today or tomorrow and work through these seven statements, leading you right up to where Moses finishes off um, these seven statements next Sunday. It would be a really good place. It would be worth your time to dig into. But I am the bread of life. Jesus says this shortly after he had fed the 5,000, the story we kind of know fairly well. He was in the region of Galilee, and the Bible tells us, it says, there's a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles. And in John 6, verse 5, Jesus asked this question. He turns to Philip, and he says, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Instantly, we see Jesus is someone who wants to provide. He knows our needs before we know them. He speaks them before we bring them to him. The disciples have no idea how to solve the problem, and they find this small amount of food. They find five barley loaves and two fish. They tell everyone to sit down, Jesus says. Tell them all to sit down. And they all sat down on the grassy slopes. Jesus took the loaves. He gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. They all ate as much as they wanted. So Jesus gives thanks to God. He meets the needs of people and he does it in community. 
he tells them to sit down on the grassy slopes. He doesn't say line up. Let's form an orderly line so we can do this really efficiently. No, and the subtle difference in that changes the way we picture that scene. If you imagine it in your mind, it's not simply supply and demand. It's something deeper. He's not just meeting a need. He's not just meeting a physical need. He highlights how he meets that need with love and in community. And then God, in turn, is extravagant in his provision. People received as much as they wanted. Now, from a catering perspective, that's pretty impressive, even today. Then it would have been incredible. Food was scarce. Catering companies didn't exist. And if you parallel the idea of bread and and grace, it's the same. Jesus gives us as much grace as we want or need. And he does it in great love and in relationship. And in response, the people say, well, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. And then Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king. So he slips away into the hills by himself. Jesus was not interested in their political leadership. That's not the leader he came to be. Marcy reminded us last week that the God's people in this time period, they're they're once again under oppression. This time it's it's Roman rule and they're longing for freedom. So they're looking for that person to free them from this oppression. But that's not the freedom Jesus came for. I don't think it's a coincidence that the next passage in scripture that we read about, Jesus is walking on water. He calms the storm. If anyone was in any doubt about his capabilities, he proves them wrong. It's not that he couldn't be the leader in that sense. He has the power to control nature. He just has no interest in using authority in our political structure. The next day, the people head out to find Jesus again. They want more free food. They're looking for Jesus to meet one of their most basic needs, really misunderstanding what their basic needs really are. And Jesus wants them to see that physical food only satisfies hunger temporarily. They're hungry again, but he's the one that can satisfy them spiritually. And he's, he's literally comparing himself to bread here. It's, it's not that much more complicated than that. He's saying, I'm like bread, a bread that gives life. I'm the, I'm the bread that provides life. Just in this case, not something temporary, but something eternal. And he tells them they should work with eternity in mind. And they reply, well, we want to perform God's work too. What, what, what should we do? And he tells them this, in verse 29, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. This is the only work God wants. Just believe in the one he has sent. Now for us, that feels like we've been let off the hook, but not so much for them. They, they ask for another miraculous sign to prove it before they believe. That's just how doubting we all are. They've just witnessed two incredible miracles, but no, 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 they need three. The next one, that'll push them over the edge. And we've been in the Old Testament. Jesus, in his great patience, reminds them of the manna that satisfied the physical needs of the Israelites in the wilderness. Still, only for a while. Eventually, everyone still died. Its sustenance was not eternal. He's offering a true bread from heaven. And the people are like, I'm in. True bread from heaven seems amazing. They're still thinking, physical. They're still focused on the now. And Jesus is satisfying a 
spiritual hunger, a spiritual need forever. Those who believe in him will have life. That manna in the wilderness satisfies a temporary hunger. And Jesus is providing a bread of life to feed the soul that will lead to everlasting life. A bold claim, never before made by another prophet. That Jesus came from heaven and, and that there was a faith component to salvation. That was never considered for God's chosen people before. That they had to do something, even as little as just believing. But Jesus, with great conviction as he had, and great confidence that he had, and great boldness, he doesn't back down. He repeats the claim to be like a loaf of bread four times in the chapter. And I think it's important to wrestle with that because of that repetition, and not just copy the disciples' initial response who said, well, this is very hard to understand. This is in verse 60. How can anyone understand it, Jesus? How can anyone accept it? They kind of just went, well, this is tricky. I don't know. It's not the best analogy. It's taking a little bit too much effort on my part to figure out. And Jesus is aware that the disciples are complaining. He says to them, well, does this offend you? Well, what will you think when the Son of Man ascends to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life, and human effort accomplishes nothing. The very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. And he said... That is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. And at that point, many of the disciples turn away and desert him. So Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you also going to leave? Because Jesus is a truth teller. He doesn't panic. and He doesn't soften the message under pressure. doesn't make it more palatable. He leans in and challenges further. And he does the same for each of us. He's asking you calmly, gently, with overwhelming love, So what about you? Are you going to leave? Who do you say I am? I think the the feeding of the 5,000, you know, walking on water, calming the storm, I'm the bread of life. These are all stories that have a feel-good nature to them. They seem easy. They're full of provision and and care and love. They, They are, but they also bring a great challenge. And the disciples rise to that challenge. And Simon Peter replies to Jesus, To whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Skipping ahead into the John chapter 7. I am the light of the world. Now Jesus made this statement during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now at this feast, there's a huge candelabra that would light in the uh, women's court of the temple. And it reminded the Israelites of the pillar of fire that that guided the, the, the Israelites through the wilderness. Back to Moses again. The people are discussing in this, in this passage the exact same question that we are 2,000 years later. It says in, this is in uh, verse 12. There's lots of grumbling about him among the crowd. Some argue he's a good man. Others say he's nothing but a fraud, deceiving the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public for they were afraid of getting trouble with the Jewish leaders. They're basically answering the same question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Who do, who, who do we say he is? And so Jesus being Jesus, calmly starts teaching. And the Bible tells us that the crowd are astonished by how well he teaches. Which, let's just pause for a second. Because you can, you can breeze past this really quickly and, it, and there's, there's some power here. Because a good teacher isn't someone who just has a good lesson plan or a great Pinterest board or with the most resourced classroom. And we often write Jesus off as a good teacher. Well, yeah, it's because he's a good teacher because, well, he has, he has the best access to the source material. Yeah, of course he's a good teacher. He knows it the best. 
And those things help. I think those things help. But to be a, a great teacher, you have to really want your students to understand. You have to have a passion and a yearning for them to help guide and equip them to, to grasp and really understand that truth that you have. And then you want to scaffold that lesson in a way that they get to the answer on their own. Jesus, the ultimate teacher, wants to help us get to that understanding where we are searching and grappling with the question ourselves. Back to the story. So Jesus is teaching the people and as this is going on, he's given this opportunity to show in real time exactly what he's talking about. The Pharisees bring a woman to, to, to him. She's allegedly committed adultery. He's in the middle of teaching and they interrupt him and they bring this, this lady up. And Jesus forgives rather than condemns her and uses this analogy of light that's used in the festival around them to tell them that in a world darkened by sin, he is holy that his light contrasts the darkness. And he offers the light and guidance to those stumbling in their own sin. He is different and his light shines in that darkness. And how better to show that than pointing out, that in the dark, pointing out the darkness in those around him, that he's the contrasting light that they all need. Without his light, they are lost in the dark, unable to throw stones at the lady. Convicted. The people at the time would have known the Old Testament scripture of the Psalms, Psalm 84, for the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. And Jesus was using that known description of God as a sun that provides light, a shield which protects, and grace which forgives as a description of himself. Yet they continue to argue and challenge and try to trap him or insinuate evil intent because they're refusing to get to know him. So they create narratives about him. And Jesus said to those that believed in him, you're truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I think a, a more powerful translation of that passage is that if you abide in my teachings, and that's kind of what Marcy was teaching on last week, abiding in God's word, resting in him, a freedom from sin doesn't come from academic study, but from abiding in him, seeing him as the sun and shield. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Which brings us to, I am the gate for the sheep. At the time that this was written, the shepherds guided their flocks into stone enclosures every night to keep him safe. And these structures had no doors and they were made with one entrance and the shepherd would lie across the opening to prevent predators from attacking, acting as a literal door. So Jesus was describing his care and his constant devotion to those who are his. It says in chapter 10, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. The one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. Unsurprisingly, in verse six, those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to you. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. The religious leaders at the time had gained authority among God's people, the sheep, 
through personal and political connections, through formal education, ambition, manipulation, corruption, through their rules and posturing and patriarchal leadership, through shame and societal constructs. And Jesus doesn't do that. He comes as a true shepherd, comes in the legitimate and designed way through love, through a calling, through care, through sacrificial service. The only way to get into God's sheepfold or family or dwelling or whatever is to go through Jesus, the door, the entryway, to be safely ushered through that gate. And God has always intended that his people would be led, fed, and protected by good shepherds. There's a purpose for the door. Any other claim as a route to God is a deception. There's only one door, and only the shepherd can enter through the door and make a way for the sheep. He calls the sheep by name. They recognize his voice, showing he has a personal connection and care, desiring a close relationship with you, not a passing acquaintance. And then again, that comes from abiding in him. And he further, further this shepherding analogy with I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd that sacrifices his life for the sheep. And with this, he, he's describing this sacrificial love for his people, letting the Israelites know that unlike a, a hired man who would run and leave a flock unprotected, to save his own life when, and it's a when, probably not if, the wolf threatens the sheep, he will not abandon his sheep. He'll keep watch over his people. Jesus fulfills the idea of, of shepherd-like care. In fact, good shepherd is, is a complete understatement because he describes, he says good shepherd and in, it describes this incredible shepherd. Nothing Jesus said was accidental. So that description of a good shepherd really reminds us of his high standards in how he, and therefore us, should care for others. He says in John 10, just as my father knows me, and I know the father, I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold, and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock with one shepherd. And that's, that's that prophecy that we've already talked about, about his coming death to save both the Jews and the Gentiles for all people who believe in his name. Jesus is the good shepherd who sacrifices for the sheep, who knows them and is known by them. Just imagine him wrestling in the garden of Gethsemane, preparing to lay down his life for you. He doesn't just know us as a creator upon high, but we get to know him too. And that's a different kind of leader, a different kind of relational God. The shepherd calls and the flock answers. One shepherd, one flock. He calls and we answer that call and we're united by his words. So Jesus said these statements for a purpose. He was letting those first century Jews who were familiar with God's definition of himself know that he truly was God incarnate, the Messiah they're waiting for, the most high God in the flesh. Now, because of the weight of those statements that maybe seem just warm and cuddly initially, but because of the weight of those statements, Jesus was accused of and crucified for blasphemy. And even that plot was ultimately ordained by God to fulfill a prophecy that Jesus would be crucified for all sins, for all that would believe in his name. He fulfills and affirms the Old Testament prophecies about himself through all these statements. It's important to realize that he knew who he was. And he wants us to clearly know him too. He shouldn't be minimized as simply a ticket to heaven, but seen as, as a daily dependence, a direction, 
a defense, a, a sacrificial savior, a victory over death, a access to the Father. I was, um, as we're closing, as, I was on the Peloton this morning, and um, the, what do you call him, instructor person? On the video, it's on here. Um, said this, they said, um, we're gonna turn today's challenge into tomorrow's change. Um, and I, I thought that was, that was cute. But um, I was struck, uh, again, how like the Christian walk, how, how strengthening our, our faith, our spiritual lives, is so similar to a physical strength and exercise. So you're on, on the Peloton, you're on the spin bike, whatever, and the trainer's calling out encouraging words and they're telling you the how and the why. And you have access to the equipment, to the means. And if, if you manage to make the time, it's still tempting to call it in, to get on the bike with a cup of coffee. I do it all the time. And finish a cup of coffee while they're yelling. And yeah, I'll, I'll get there, I'll be there in a minute. Just, I'm gonna warm up this way. Yet we do all that, we call it in, we don't show up, we don't listen to what they're saying. We don't follow the instruction and we still expect the change to come. And it's not going to. Today's challenge is tomorrow's change and we must meet that challenge. So don't just sit in front of an open Bible. Engage with it. Abide in it, in his word. Pour out your heart to Jesus and see the change that Jesus wants for you. So do you know Jesus? not just as a great teacher, not just as a miracle worker, not just even as a savior, but as the great I am in the flesh who became your sustenance and light and hope and salvation and strength all through a deep relationship. So who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your great love for us, for each of us as individuals. Thank you that you know us as individuals. You care for us deeply. We ask that you challenge each of us as individuals. Help us to meet that challenge so that it can be tomorrow's change for you that it furthers our faith in you, it deepens our relationship with you. It spurs us on to live for you in a greater way. Help us answer that question, who do you say I am for each of us? Give us the courage to answer that question. Amen.